Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, brought to you by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never, ever been a better time to invest in precious metals. Please check out my friends at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. I talk a lot online, on my social platforms, and here about China and my concerns not only about their slave labor, their human rights violations, but also their hostility toward the rest of the world and their long-term plans. This may seem like it doesn't affect your everyday life. I'm here to tell you that it does. And I'm not the only one here to tell you. I have a great guest coming on to tell you in really understandable terms why you need to care about what's going on in China. I know a lot of you do, but so many people don't have even a scintilla of understanding of what is going on in this country. And it's a country that we are really intertwined with economically. And that's a dangerous place to be. We saw that during COVID, right? We saw how some of our supply chains were shut down. We couldn't, we couldn't trust China. We couldn't get some of our supplies from China because they were shutting everything down. Coming up, Ambassador Andrew Bremberg. He is the president of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. By the way, that memorial just opened up this summer in Washington, D.C. If you get a chance, please visit it. He served as the representative of the United States to the Office of the United Nations and other international organizations in Geneva. He is a wealth of knowledge. He has a great way of putting this stuff in simple terms. I hope you'll stick around and listen because this is really important for every American to understand. Andrew Brangberg, the ambassador, joins us next. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity. With your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. I was recently in Washington, D.C. with my 16-year-old son, who was very interested in all the monuments and the museums there. And I had hoped for us to take time to go to the Victims of Communism Memorial. There is a foundation there. There is a lot of great work done to remind people about communism, its victims, what it has left in its wake. And we're so happy to have the president of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, Ambassador Andrew Bremberg, with us. Ambassador, thank you so much again for taking the time for us. Um, I, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And I want to I get to basics so that people have some building blocks as we go into this conversation. How do you define communism? Thanks so much for having me. Yes. Uh, this is such an important topic for people to learn and understand today um, because it's very present and, and uh, permeating throughout the world right now. So communism 
is the deadliest ideology uh, in human history. And over the last century is responsible for killing more than 100 million people. So under, that's why, you know, and more than one and a half billion still live under communism today. So communism, we define as a totalitarian ideology where one party rule and the state controls all the means of production and, 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 and life throughout an entire country and, e and an economy. So everything is state controlled. And we see this very uh, prominently, obviously, in China. It is the Communist Party, after all. Uh, and and we know that as of this recording, uh, Xi Jinping has been uh, elected and secured uh, a third five-year term, likely will be serving for elected. life. <laughs> yes, elected. elected. Yes, I, no, I, 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 I refuse to refer to him as a president. Uh, this whole idea that they're a democracy in any way needs to be soundly rejected. He's selected within his cabal peer group within the CCP. And, it, you know, I, I think we had a point in our country's history where we thought we could become friends with China and bring them more into democracy. And instead, it almost seems as though we're leaning a little bit more toward their way of dealing with, uh, you know, ha having a government or overseeing their their society. Um, is that a fair statement? How, how did we misjudge this so? Yeah, no, I, I think it is. And if we go back basically, you know, 30 years, you know, you have the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union, which, you know, is historic and you know, miraculous that, that this ended. And I think we, we misjudged and misunderstood the world, you know, human nature and where things were headed. The, the larger kind of, you know, idea, idea ethos that we were all kind of hopeful was, was this kind of end of history idea that, you know, Western democracy was on the march. Communism had been thrown on the ash heap of history back in the past. And that, yes, this kind of economic partnership, economic integration with China would inevitably lead to a kind of Westernization of their politics and moving in a general, you know, more democratic order. And, you know, Unfortunately, I think this was a naive belief at the time, but, but most critically is that as we sought to go down this road, we failed as a country to discipline both our own behavior and theirs um, throughout the su successive decades. You know, we should have known better and seen after you know, Tiananmen Square mm -hmm. that this was an authoritative, murderous regime that would not liberalize, that when they joined the WTO, um, back in 2000, they didn't institute economic reforms. They didn't even follow the rules they had agreed to follow. And the response from the U.S. was not to discipline or force them to or suffer economic consequences, but was basically to kind of close our eyes, keep, keep making a, a, a good buck off of cheap labor in China and keep moving forward. So it, there are many critical points along the way where we failed to respond adequately. And you just said one of the critical things, make a cheap buck. It yeah. seems to me that that is the driving force behind our quote unquote ignorance. It, we have to know what's going on over there, but obviously we're benefiting in some way that we allow this behavior to continue. That's right. What is, are we just that spineless and the almighty dollar is more important? Are we not seeing the long game here? Or is there some other, is there something else at play? I, it, it's baffling to me. No, I mean, I, I think this is the critical question we're facing now. So I think for a long time, 
Um, we've been very happy to have our head in the sand to kind of make the cheap buck. And while many people were, you know, warning of what was happening in China, the direction they were headed, that this was not working, we tried to kind of hide that from our eyes and just kind of keep going forward. And I think in the last several years, particularly under Xi Jinping, um, and then just in the last five years or so, it's been very, very clear in this kind of you know, ostrich approach to trying to ignore their legal violations, uh, their, their theft of intellectual property, their massive human rights violations and genocide um, just can't be ignored anymore. And they are demonstrably acting out much more aggressively than we had ever kind of anticipated previously. So we are in the process right now where we as a nation are going to have to come to some real decisions about how we chart our path forward vis-a-vis China. And do you think that this is the administration to do it, the Joe Biden administration? Well, I've I've been disappointed in many ways. I think there's lots of opportunities where they certainly could do more. At at the same time, I will say um, the single area of the probably the greatest policy continuity between the Trump administration and the Biden administration has been on China. Um, As I said, I think this administration needs to be doing more. Um, but but it hasn't been a, a huge reversal. You know, many people expected that there'd be a big reversal of policy across the board a- after the election. And I think this is an area where we can look and say at the end of the Trump administration, Secretary Pompeo, who I worked with, you know, he made a genocide determination, legal analysis that what China was doing in Xinjiang, in Western China, constituted a genocide that is happening today. Right. Um, you know, millions of Uyghurs. In, in Western China, an ethnic and Muslim minority. And there was a big question, would the Biden administration reverse that policy? And they did not. And I think that's been important. And we see a growing bipartisan consensus. And I'll temper myself and say, not as strong as we need to see yet, right. but a growing bipartisan consensus that to address this national security and human rights threat posed by China. We, we saw the passage of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that happened bipartisan. President Biden eventually signed it that bans the importation of any goods from Xinjiang because of it's associated with genocide and forced labor. So uh, it's, it's a necessary step. We need to be doing more. And I think what's important is that the public needs to be much better educated to know what's actually happening so that they can help inform their, you know, elected officials, regardless of party, that we have to make serious changes as a country. Absolutely. And and this is something I, I do in my own small way, and I try to bring this out. I was on the set of The View multiple times, and one I have one very clear memory, and that is when I mentioned slavery in China. And I, I won't name names, but one of the co-hosts turned to another and said, there's there's slavery? There's slave labor in China? She did not know. And I, I don't know how you can be working for a show that is under the umbrella of ABC News and not know that there is slave labor in China. So we've got that element. We've got the national security element. And of course, the, the slave labor part, part, part falls under the human rights violations. But let's start with this genocide. What do we know for a fact is happening that Mike Pompeo said, we've got to deem this genocide. 
Yeah, and, and many people may not know, and your, your listeners may not know the, the backdrop here. So as I mentioned, Xinjiang, the, the, the furthest Western region of China, um, is made up by uh, ethnic and religious minorities that are called the Uyghurs. Mm-hmm. They're mostly Muslim minorities and for decades have not really been ruled by you know, China. We're, we're left more kind of autonomously. And um, what we saw basically going back 10 years is this oppressive uh, policy start to take hold in Xinjiang to suppress the Uyghur population and try to um, actually get rid of it um, in a very bizarre and horrific way. So about f- six years ago, we saw actual evidence. We started to see real stories of massive levels of detention and um, and separation of families um, and horrific things happening in Xinjiang. And we were talking about, people would talk about it publicly and the Chinese government would basically just lie and say, no, nothing's happening. So then in 2018, we had the first satellite images that showed, you know, an image on the one side uh, that showed, you know, nothing or, or one old building and 11 months later, a massive detention facility you know, arose out of nowhere. So we started saying, what are these facilities? Yeah. And China then began its kind of new pivot to a lie to say, oh, this is part of what they call their poverty alleviation programs. And these facilities are vocational education centers. So we, know, we knew this was a lie, but you can't get access to them. It's hard right. to demonstrate that. Until this year, our organization received tens of thousands of documents from the first ever hack of one of these Xinjiang police stations. So let me repeat that. Tens of thousands of documents from inside. We received, we we were not the hackers, um, but we received this information. The first ever photos from inside these camps, massive spreadsheets of personally identifiable information on hundreds of thousands of people who have been processed through these camps. Um, training manuals and instructions for how their security personnel deal with prisoners and kind of previously secret and never before seen speeches and directives from Beijing and uh, senior party officials to these operations in Xinjiang, acknowledging and directing this mass detention. So we released these Xinjiang police files this summer, and this has had a huge impact on U.S. foreign policy and other countries kind of ripping out and showing evidence to them that this genocide is taking place. And these these documents, I, I, I'm obviously you've verified these. These this yes. is, there's no way around this being falsified or anything like that. A- absolutely not. And in fact, um, this past summer, the UN uh, Office for Human Rights did a re- finally released a report that we had been pushing for years for them to re- release on the human rights situation in Xinjiang. And the most cited sources for evidence were these Xinjiang police files. And and in fact, in a weird perverse way, uh, when China, who was outraged by this report, um, attacked the report, they basically validated that they, these were in fact real documents. They were saying we were misconstruing them though. Uh, and, and there is no misconstruing what is happening here. When, you, when you're talking about in these parts of China, up to 2 million people have been detained. I mean, let that sink in. Two million people, and in the region, that's approximately you know fifteen percent of the entire adult population has been detained. The, would China prefer to wipe this Uyghur population out? 
I think so. You know, we, we've not seen, you know, thankfully, we have not seen the kind of mass killings that we've seen by communist regimes in the past. But what they're basically doing is trying to wipe out the identity of Uyghurs. So the ethnic and religious identity. So, you know, you would think that if this was a security concern, most of your prisoners would all be, you know, you know, young men between, you know, 18 and 40. Whereas the number of senior citizens, including women who are detained here is, is truly shocking. And it's clear that what they're trying to do is just terminate any kind of cultural language and religious transmission to younger generations. And what they're doing with the family separations is making sure that these Uyghur children are now raised not to learn the Uyghur language or raised to be Muslim or in, in a Han Chinese community to basically eliminate the, the Uyghur identity without having to, you know, kill everyone. If you just detain enough of them and then break apart their families over the, you know, China, the Chinese Communist Party takes a long-term vision. You know, over the next generation, you'll be able to assimilate or kind of wipe out this identity within China. What what is the problem that they have with this identity that it just doesn't conform with their beliefs? What, yeah. what? Um, we, we, we saw the similar brutality in Tibet. You know, this is both part of the kind of Chinese nationalism, but deeply rooted in communist ideology. You know, when you have an ideology um, in a totalitarian communist state, there is only one party. There is only one you know, message, one truth. And any source of alternative thought is a threat to the state. That That's includes why. religion, right? Oh, exactly. So in every case, whether this was in Central and Eastern Europe or Cuba, Latin America or China today, um, religion is always a threat. And any religion, any philosophy, any sort of an artistic thought and artistic expression, these are all ways that can deviate from the communist ideology and are by definition a threat to the regime. So they have to be either you know, exterminated or very tightly controlled. Exterminated or very tightly controlled. Let that sink in. Um, yeah. You know, we talk about this one province, and yet I'm hearing, and I, I again, this is stuff I'm hearing, and I'd love for you to, to be the expert voice on this, that a lot of these people now, this quote-unquote slave labor, is being taken out of that province and moved all over China so that you know, we can say that we're eliminating imports from this area, but that might not mean that we're eliminating all imports that have been manufactured by slave labor, correct? That is completely correct. Um, and that's, that's such an important point to make. So I, I mentioned last year, the United States government instituted this new law, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, that says, okay, we're not going to allow importation of goods from this region. And the law also says that we're not going to allow importation of goods made from slave labor. But how that's implemented is <laughs> critical. And what we're seeing is both you know, in China, they have you know, the, these camps in Xinjiang where they do the forced labor in the region. But as you pointed out, they also now, once they've kind of established this massive detention policy, they've gotten everyone detained they want, which they've basically reached that point in the last year. They're now transferring them to other uh, factory or housing facilities in other parts of China. And we have this documented in all of our research uh, as part of this kind of Uyghur labor force that they can provide to other parts of China. So even if it's not coming from Xinjiang, the product very easily and in many cases likely in certain industries is certainly tainted 
by forced labor or slave labor um, that, that we're seeing today. The entire um, you know, solar panel industry from China, yes. polysilicon, um, this entire um, sector is dominated by slave labor of, of Uyghurs. So these types of products, you know, that has not been fully cut off and banned yet. And that's this next level. We need to make sure this government, our administration here is rigorously enforcing the law. This is the thing that drives me crazy that it, it seems so obvious to me that anything really that comes from China in some way, shape or form down this down the line of operation of manufacture of logistics somewhere along the line, slave labor has touched it, which is why it's so inexpensive for us to import rather than getting it anywhere else. Um, all right. We're going to take a quick break because we, we need to get into the national security implications I I think this is such a massive problem that isn't talked about enough. We're so focused right now on the war between Russia and Ukraine, on our own economic woes at home. But we need to take a long-term approach to the world, too, and a long-term view. That's certainly what they're doing in China. More with Ambassador Andrew Bremberg after this. Well, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, the economy is the economy, right? It's the economy, stupid. How many interesting quotes with the word economy can we come up with? The point is you're feeling it. I'm feeling it. Everyone's feeling the effects of a tough economy. And I'm afraid it's not going to get better soon. Um, some indications are we're either in a recession already, though some like to deny it, or that we're headed toward one. Either way, you have short-term and long-term decisions to make, and even medium-term. The short-term, you go to the gas station, you go, my gosh, help me. In the long-term, you look at your IRA, your 401k, whatever your savings may be, and ask yourself, do you have gold in there? Do you have silver? Any precious metals? If you're considering it, Go to Legacy Precious Metals. They are the ones I trust when investing in gold and silver. Now, if you look back to 2008, remember that crash? Those who invested in gold saw some really significant gains. Others, oh, they lost their retirements. So this may be the time for you to start thinking about gold and silver in your retirement plan. Legacy Precious Metals can answer all of your questions. You can speak to an IRA expert by calling 1-866-528-1903. 866-528-1903. They also have a free investor's guide you can download at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Back with Ambassador Andrew Bramberg of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Anyone in America who thinks that socialism or communism is a better way to go really doesn't understand what socialism and communism are really all about. We're talking specifically about China today because this is so big on my radar screen, and I, and I think so many people don't know enough. China has a long-term plan, and it's really interesting because I think, you know, here in the States, we all think about our own lives, how we're going to retire, how we're going to be happy. China is thinking about global domination a hundred hundreds of years from now, not just today, not just their own well-being, but the but the country's station in the world. What is their long-term goal as a country? So, I mean, I think definitely, you know, becoming the global hegemon, the most powerful country in the world that can, um, you know, largely set or dictate 
international affairs in line with their national and ideological interest. You know, when I was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. in Geneva, I saw this very clearly. Their strategy, and as you said, it's extremely important, is very long term. They look back and they, they view the current U.N. system for all its you know, strengths and weaknesses as something that the, the U.S. and our partners and allies built after we won World War II. And, you know, they were not a strong, powerful country then. They had a plan to become one, but they thought, okay, well, we'll just go along with what the powerful countries set as these kind of new international standards and rules internationally. But as they've been, you know, becoming more powerful and in their mind, clearly, they believe they've eclipsed the United States. Okay. They think they've, they're moving forward. You know, the sun rises in the east and is setting in the west. That, that's how they frame it. And that um, now that they're in charge, they're going to, they're actively trying to do it right now. I saw it firsthand and they're going to reshape the international order and rules to conform with their ideology and their interests. And I, I would talk with them and I, I spoke with my you know, counterpart to talk about human rights and, you know, this very troubling approach they were taking to trying to change the language about how we all talk about human rights. They have a very clear, clear policy objective. To, to focus less on individual rights and to focus on collective rights or like the rights to development so that we, when we can talk about human rights, um, you know, they do a great job promoting and protecting human rights because of their collectivist ideology. If, if they cr create that on an even playing field or even above individual human rights. So I would talk to them about this and you know, I said, well, we've all agreed for decades, these, you know, these documents, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and you're trying to change this perspective. And th their response was very surprising to me, which is that they felt, well, when you were in charge, you got to set the rules. So now we're going to be in charge. So you're, you're being very rude. <laughs> you can just go along with what we're trying to set. And it was very revealing that, you know, it's not like they actually believe in these human rights. They believe, oh, Whoever's the strongest gets to you know, set the rules. And that was a real you know, eye opener to me that we really need to be focused on pushing back on them in, in all these international fora to preserve the kind of Western democratic tradition. If we have any hope of preserving it for us, our children and the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's when people look at China as its own country, obviously, but don't, I think, Many people at their peril underestimate the power this country has, the ambition to set set the global tone to to you know to be the most powerful country on earth, which would not be a good thing. Right. What are they? What kind of steps are they taking? I'm sorry, I'm kind of going train of thought here, so I, I have so many questions. Their military relative to the United States military. How do you? Who is stronger? Uh, undoubtedly, the United States is has a stronger military than China. Uh, they know this. What what they've been doing though is they've been building their military specifically to outcompete potentially the United States within a within a particular field of military engagement in the east in in, in East Asia and in the Western Pacific. So they have the hope and goal of kind of renewing. What, what is their kind of, in their mind, rightful place as the kind of not just global hegemon, but first the, the Asian and Pacific hegemon. You know, China for thousands of years 
you know, is, 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 a, is an old you know, country and civilization. And for most of thousands of years was the kind of gravitational epicenter of Asia. You know, other countries and civilizations around its periphery you know, basically had to adjust to the gravitational pull of China. And it, again, over thousands of years that looked differently, but frequently you had, you know, tributary states or vassals or other countries around China that, you know, again, had to lean based off of the, the strength of China. So one, they want to reestablish that clearly. Um, what is a huge objective, uh, object, uh, problem to that is the U.S. military presence in the Pacific that creates a presumptive status quo basically for the, for mostly the last 70 years that, you know, because of the UN, you know, structure, the U S our, our military partners and allies, you know, we're not going to allow countries to just, you know, through force change borders around the world. And so countries like Japan and South Korea and the Philippines and Vietnam have all been able to pursue their own kind of national interests and foreign policy obviously aware of what China's doing, but not in a kind of servile position vis-a-vis right. -vis China. And that's something they want to dramatically shift. And that, that's the kind of first step of replacing that entire region of kind of satellite countries mm -hmm. that reorient themselves in a more, you know, servile relationship with China is their like next step. Taiwan is a big part of that, right? And, uh, and, and that is the first part of that step. Yeah. Their objective with Taiwan and our interest in Taiwan, obviously, are <laughs> they don't work together. And and the people of Taiwan, where do they? How do they see all of this? Clearly, they want to stay independent. This is such a right. bizarre um, thing to me when you have an actor like John Senna apologizing for calling Taiwan a country. Right. It, it's it, it it speaks to the power of China over maybe the Hollywood industry, it, it, all Without of these, all of these industries that China has such a strong, are we most attracted to that population for ticket sales and that kind of thing? Or is there some other weird power structure going on that, that we aren't seeing? You know, I, I really think a lot of it is at the core economic, but a lot of it's unseen. So, you know, we, we, we look at the example of, you know, whether it's the NBA literally kowtowing to China or that, you know, embarrassing John Senna, uh, it, you know, I think despicable John Senna approach, you know, apologizing for calling Taiwan a country. Um, those are more kind of obvious examples. But what is beneath that is there are massive amounts of U.S. financial investments in China, um, but really has shifted over the last several decades away from it being chiefly a source of cheap labor, which was the, the kind of first step but is now focused on market access, right? right. Like Senna and the NBA, they're not trying to buy cheap goods from China. They want to sell their movies or their you know, NBA games into China. Yeah. And they, they've invested a lot in it. And you know, the, Wall Street in the United States, if you look at the financial sector, there are massive investments in China. And I think those are mistaken for a number of reasons. One, those are vulnerable. I mean, the, the Chinese Communist Party has shown just in the last two years, uh, they have no compunction, you know, basically seizing and taking control of companies and all sorts of assets within China. So there, there's a huge just pure risk associated with that that I do not think is, you know, appropriately priced in. But also it means that they want to keep making money off of doing business in China. So they will do everything they can 
know, a lot, a lot of times at the direction of the of, Ch- of the Chinese yeah. Communist Party, yeah, to stop and obstruct changes in U.S. policy to protect our own citizens um, from you know dangers of China or to stand up for our own values. So that I think is the deeper kind of underlying message that there's so much money invested um, in China and, and in trying to access Chinese markets. Um, you know, the average American investor that has any sort of retirement or 401k is probably invested in China. And, and that's something that the, your, your listeners should, you know, think about and check, you know, are yeah. you yourself personally invested in companies that are party to genocide or slave labor? Thank you for putting it so succinctly. Uh, um, it's, and it's so difficult because some of the things that are manufactured there are things that now have become indispensable to us iPhones, you know, and I would love to see what is it going to take for these disentanglements to occur? Because, I mean, so many great American country companies, excuse me, Apple being one of them. When is it when are they going to wise up to or have the patriotism or even just the long term view to understand that what they're partaking in here is is bereft of our values is damaging to human rights and bring those manufacturing plants out of there. I know it's going to be expensive. I've talked to a couple of CEOs about this. I get that the entanglement is difficult, but it seems to me it has to happen. Absolutely. It absolutely has to happen. And my point is it is happening and companies that start that process now are going to competitively be better off by starting that and finding a less disruptive, smooth transition out of China than companies that you know kind of stick their head in the sand. And when something gets worse, which it inevitably will, are going to have to make rash, rush decisions. Or as right. we saw in COVID, you have these dependent supply chains that you can't <laughs> count on, right? So um, companies are starting to do that. I know Apple is moving some of their iPhone production out of China. I forget some of the details, but I know that's taking place. And you see it across the board. On the supply chain side, they're moving out. You know, not you know. I don't want to give them too much credit. Uh, that, that's really about standing for human rights. But it's because they know it's an untrustworthy supply chain, as as they saw in COVID. So that's moving out, and that that is a good step and a good sign. My bigger concern is is that is they're not you know, trying to change their markets. They keep trying to move in on selling products and services into China. And that's going to be the big financial you know, target that they're going to be aiming, aiming towards. And, you know, I criticize them and I, and I think it's fair to. At the same time, though, we need our government leaders to be clear to them and provide them the clarity that says, no, this is wrong and you should stop doing it. Because, you know, I, I don't think you need the government to tell you what's right and wrong, okay? But, but it is a, an excuse that they use to say, well, wait a minute, why should I pull out? My competitor is going to be selling into China. The government isn't forcing us to do this. So why should I do it? I mean, the answer is because it's the morally right thing to do. And for all these CEOs and financial folks that, that seem to claim they care about morality, um, they, they, they should actually follow it. But aside from that, you know, it is up to our elected leaders to provide the direction for these companies to say, look, you need to get out. They are a clear and present dangerous threat to the United States. They violate human rights and our values. And you should do everything you can to look for alternative markets and not focus on investment because at the rate the Chinese Communist Party is going today, 
we are not going to be doing a lot of business with China in the future unless they dramatically change their regime. So I think that's a message that elected officials need to be sending to you know, businesses and investors on a daily basis. And 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 we, the voters, can be sending that message to our elected officials as well. That's I think, exactly you know, right. we, we've got to do that. We've got to say that as citizens of a, of a free country, we don't like what's going on. You mentioned COVID, and I, I can't, you know, complete this conversation with you without touching on this. It, it It's astonishing to me that we have turned our focus inward about our mistakes surrounding COVID and, you know, who did this and who did that and masks this and mandates that. All of that is debatable and worth discussion. But we seem to have forgotten the whole discussion of where this 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 virus came from and, and was it manufactured? And it seems to me that why, why? I, I, again, I'm going train of thought here, but why are why are we dropping the ball there? What, is it because simply because we don't have access? This this is a critical issue. And let me just add uh, to, to this perspective. As I said, I was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. in Geneva. That is where the World Health Organization is headquartered. So I was there for the entire beginning of the pandemic watching China lie to the WHO and to the international community about what was going on. I had regular meetings with the WHO leadership over their lies and failure to objectively communicate with you know, the world about what information China was and wasn't sharing. So right out of the gate, China blocked any meaningful access of in outside international experts to begin any examination of what the origin of this virus was. And you know, think about this. We are more than two years through this pandemic you know, thankfully coming out the other end. And we still don't know what the origins of this virus were. were. And, and just to put it in context, you know, the, the fact that it is still so very credible, if not probable, that this virus leaked from either a lab or was part of some sort of collection that they were engaged in, um, the fact that that hasn't been clearly established not to be the case, or on the other side, the fact that there have been zero actual zoonotic origins found that could be intermediary examples is just shocking. And the fact that we tolerate this, yes, that we, that we say China is part of the international community, that we allow you know travel to and from China, that we work with them on public health issues. This is a country that should be a pariah for lying and at the very least, not openly engaging on public health. I mean, that is the entire, you know, not to get too deep on this because I spent months on this issue, yeah. but you know, the entire point of the WHO system and what were called the international health regulations that set out how countries communicate and collaborate around sharing of public health information has a real important role. And, but to allow them to, with impunity to violate that system and not cooperate, um, I think has just been deeply damaging to you know, the world objectively, but also to the idea of this you know, international order where we work together. And the fact that there have not been more severe consequences for China is, is very um, troubling because you know, when the next you know, virus pops out anywhere, either from a lab or from nature, right? and whether that happens in China or some other country, have they learned the lesson that, oh, we have to be transparent and share this information right away or have they, not just the CCP or other countries, have learned, hey, 
we should really hide things as much as we can and you know there won't be consequences right we'll Remember, get away with it this is all happening at the same time that you know china sucked up the entire ppe supply right when this was happening so i mean they they knew this was spreading and they started buying all the ppe that they produce and sell way before other countries kind of realized what was going on right um, and, and just an important point to make that i always drove home was that you know the chinese government had obviously in hospitals and labs very early versions of this virus you know even if we just take them at their word in december that they had been analyzing and they refused to ever share any of the original virus samples that would have been extremely helpful in you know uh, developing the diagnostics or vaccines or treatments and we only ended up getting you know access over a computer to scans of those codes or eventually access to other strains of the virus that that came to our country but this was an important point that they never shared the original of uh, virus samples that they collected in december even why why didn't they? It, it, it doesn't that just kind of demonstrate that this was a manufactured virus, a gain of function product, and and they didn't want to be held responsible? I mean, we don't know. It obviously leads one to think that's probably the case, um, or that they're obviously hiding something. Hiding but something, it, yeah. But 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 it's just it's truly remarkable. I think part of the reason is too. You know, I was there, you know, trying to press them for this the failure of other nations to stand up for their own populations and even for the international system and demand this type of action from china you know if if you're going to you know act in your own personal self-interest in a way that harms others but other people don't really care or push back on you are you going to change your behavior no and and that's the basic human psychology that i think we have to understand i mean they're they're, they're not, you know, the CCP, they're, they're not, you know, aliens. I mean, they respond with the same type of human behavior that fits their ideology. They have a different value set, but they respond to incentives. If, if the response of the world to them not sharing this information was, you know, swift, you know, condemnation and cutting off of other international relationships of different types or cooperation, it would have made them, you know, give it at least a second thought. Uh, but instead, what they saw was weakness around the world. And important to point out, during the height of COVID in 2020, that was the moment that the Chinese Communist Party then chose to implement what was called its new national security law and completely wipe out self-governance or any form of democracy in Hong Kong. That's, that's when they chose to crush Hong Kong and violate their international agreement with the UK when Hong Kong had been handed over to mainland China which they had promised that now Hong Kong would be part of one country, but two systems. Right. And they completely violated that and wiped it out at the height of COVID, knowing other countries aren't going to do anything about it. So now's our time to act. And if the United States and the rest of our partners and allies don't start to show you know, a spine, to show that international agreements are important, our values are important, and we're going to push back in, in important ways, um, there's a huge risk that China is going to keep learning the lesson that, that you know, no matter what they do, they can get away with it. And that can lead to really dangerous um, you know, scenarios in the future. You know, I, I, I pray every day that we avoid a serious, you know, real co intense Cold War or, a, of course, a hot war with China. But our failure to respond or discipline small actions only increases the likelihood that we're going to be confronted with severe, dangerous choices in the future. 
at the risk of opening a whole other can of worms, isn't that what the UN was supposed to do? Wasn't the UN supposed to be a collection of nations that that stood together when one went astray, when one went rogue? Yes. I mean, this this is clearly what the the whole point of the UN uh, international community is supposed to be. Um, It's it's a useful tool in concept. Uh, It's a great idea behind it. The problem is we don't actually defend the the values that we've put into the system. So if the US and other countries won't uh, stand up for it and use it, it's going to be used or misused by other countries, whether it be China and the way they're trying to reshape the values of the UN or as we see today with, you know, Russia. Oh, my goodness. You, you and I are going to have to reconvene and dig deeper into the UN at some point, because it seems to me that that, that it that that organization proves again and again that it isn't willing to stand up for its values as a collective, that it, it talks a lot and they have some great meetings and I'm sure they have some great cocktail receptions. But I'm I'm a little concerned about the actual spine there that uh, it was supposed to have. Um, Ambassador Andrew Bremberg, this has been so enlightening, and we've only scratched the surface. <laughs> I, I there's so much to discuss, and you explain it very very well. And I hope we can have you back. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for you know your, your support for our mission yeah. and for the Victims of Communism Museum here in Washington that we, as you said, we we opened this summer. It's so important that you know, people from all walks of life, particularly students and school groups, I encourage all your listeners to tell your schools to bring your students to come see the Victims of Communism Museum, yeah. or act, if they can't come in person, access our information on our website, which is victimsofcommunism.org, where we have all sorts of important educational material to help parents, but teachers teach and educate younger generations about all the victims of communism. So, so, so important. It's just massively important. I'm so thrilled that the the memorial, the, the museum has been opened and that I, I hope you get just tons of foot traffic because it is, it is so important. And I appreciate you being with us for this edition of Sideline Sanity. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Don't forget to be brave and uh, stand up for people. <laughs> Do good. Check out the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation online. And thanks for sticking around. Well, Sideline Sanity, we are very proud to be sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. And we're joined by Charles Thorngren, the CEO of Legacy Precious Metals. Charles, we are hearing now that this is not transitional inflation. This is not a bump in the road. This inflation is going to be here a while. What, what What does that tell you? You know, that's the scary thing. Um, I think, you know, economies and, and and such like that, they can deal with small jars. We have a unique situation. We had a Fed that waited much too long to react to the situation, calling inflation transitory for a year when everyone knew it wasn't. But more importantly than that, coming out now saying this is going to be here. This is long term. This is not short term. We're going to have elevated rates for the long term. And, and why that gets really scary is that means the cost of doing business is going to be elevated for years, which means the cost of goods are going to be elevated for years, which means if companies can't make enough money, they will go out of business. This is why we, we hear some of your bigger companies are already talking about layoffs. So 
It's a unique situation. The Fed found themselves in a very bad place and they reacted way too slow. And this is why we're at where we're at. So if I'm an investor, then what's why do I want gold and silver in my portfolio? What what will that do for me? You know, that, that's a great question. And that's a question we get a lot. And and really what gold and silver do, um, they act as the hedge against the dollar weakness. They act as a hedge against the other markets. And we know that the Dow and, and all of your markets, all your indices are, are, are pulling back, right? That's not the issue. It's not what's already happened. It's what's yet to come. And that's where we, we need to prepare. So depending on who you listen to and, and the research that you do, you know, there are case studies of saying expect to see another 25, 20 to 25% pullback in your equities markets based on interest rates and loans and, and the bond markets they're suffering as well. No one's going out to buy bonds knowing that they're going to be, um, an increased return on them in three months. It makes no sense. So that leaves you in a position of what to do with your money and how to protect yourself. This is where gold and silver come in. This is why we say this is a long-term play. You buy it, you forget about it, let it do its, its job. And its job is to go up over time as the dollar gets weaker, as the purchasing power gets less, gold and silver increase. It protects that purchasing power. And that's the great thing about it. And there's your bottom line and why you need to call Legacy Precious Metals or go download their investor's guide at LegacyPreciousMetals.com. Charles, it's always good to talk to you because these are nerve-wracking times for people. You know, it, it's just the fact of the matter is, as we were told by the, the Fed chair, there's going to be some pain. So if people know that they've got something solid sitting in their investment portfolio, I think they're going to feel a little bit better, right? Absolutely. And... and we, you know, when we look at the actions that have happened just recently, I mean, the Fed has taken a very unique stance and they've done something very um, extraordinary. Three quarters of a basis points raises months in a row. That's one of the largest raises you've ever seen in the Fed through the history of the Fed. And it's not just once. One time is shocking. Here we are on the third month now. And we'll probably do another half a half a basis point next month or, or later this month, possibly even three quarters of a point. So when you look at that and you say that number is going to grow to where the Fed interest rates will be about 5%, unheard of. That means the interest rate to you and I, if that's what banks pay to borrow money, we're going to see, you know, credit cards will probably be over 28, 30% again. You're going to see home loans coming in 9, 10, possibly even 11 percent. And it's it's a scary time. And this is why we say, OK, know this coming. Don't be afraid. You, you now are aware. So now you can protect yourself. And that's what we help people do. Don't be afraid. Prepare. Just prepare yourself and like I say every day, I trust Legacy Precious Metals when it comes to investing in gold and silver. So go to LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Charles and his group can answer any and all of your questions. Charles, thank you so much. My pleasure as always.